name's Stephen Morris and welcome to Songs in the Key Of, a podcast about songs. These might be old songs, new songs or middle-aged songs, anything that takes my fancy really. Sometimes these shows will be themed around an idea, a person, a genre or some other concept. Other times they will simply reflect my latest obsessions, my new favourite bands, those songs I can't get out of my head. So let's get on with it. This time round there's no particular theme, just another playlist of 10 rather splendid tunes to get your ears round. A few weeks back the news came through that Mimi Parker from the band Low had died. It seemed to mark the beginning of one of those phases where every few days someone else from the list of the great and the good in music passes away. Shortly after her death, Wilco Johnson left us and then Chrissy McVie died soon after that. Then the news came through that Jet Black from the Stranglers had passed away as well. Most recently we've heard about the deaths of Terry Hall of the Specials and Fun Boy 3 and of Martin Duffy from Felt, the Charlatans and Primal Scream. Mimi Parker was the drummer and singer with Lowe, having formed the band with her husband Alan Sparhawk in 1993. They emerged at the height of grunge and although Lowe's sound is pretty much quieter, more subdued and slower than your standard song by Nirvana or Pearl Jam, it's pretty clear that Lowe's music shares a similar palette of themes and ideas. If you imagine a nightclub playing Smells Like Teen Spirit on the main dance floor, that same nightclub could well have Into You playing in the chill-out room. Lowe's music is famously Spartan in sound. Their music is often filed under slowcore, which, as is often the case with bands when they get pigeonholed, the band didn't really appreciate. Nevertheless, it does seem to be a pretty appropriate appellation for a style of music that is so lingering, meditative and quietly intense. And that slowcore sound and ethic all make sense when you take into account where they came from. Mimi Parker and Alan Sparhawk met as schoolchildren at the ages of 9 and 10 when Alan moved with his family to Clearbrook, population 500, in the county of Clearwater, Minnesota. If that figure of 500 sounds small, the truth is even more minimalist. The Sparhawks moved to the outskirts of Clearbrook to an area called Leonard, population 50. In an interview with Uncut magazine back in 2011, Alan Sparhawk explained that life in and around Clearwater, Minnesota's poorest county, was a brutal lifestyle. Whether it's the weather or the farming, if you're dealing with animals, you're dealing with life and death. There's isolation, miserable work, the stress of being a kid growing up in a tough time in an intense family. If Alan and Mimi were ever going to form a band, it's kind of inevitable that that band would end up sounding like Low. The song by Low I've chosen for this episode comes from their 2015 album Ones and Sixes. It's called Congregation and features Mimi Parker on vocals, both lead and backing. Aside from being a married couple in a band, one of the other key facts that people often latch onto about Lowe is Parker and Sparhawk's faith as Mormons. Mimi converted to Mormonism at the time of her marriage to Alan. Mormonism and music are not exactly the most obvious of bedfellows. 
To be honest, aside from Low, the only other Mormon I can think of in music is Brandon Flowers from The Killers. The predilection of Mormonism in favour of clean, modest living provides a direct contrast with the rock and roll excesses of rock and roll. And to be honest, Low don't come across as your average stereotype of clean-cut missionaries knocking on your door in a crisp white shirt and black tie and name badge keen to share with you the thoughts of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. In a 2018 interview with the American radio station network NPR, Alan Sparhawk said that I think our music a lot of the time struggles with who am I? What is truth? What is the correct path when you don't really understand what it should be as much as you have hoped? And this comes across in spades in songs like Congregation. The stereotype of Mormonism is that it is one of those ever so strict sects in religion with tight regulations and requirements to conform lest you are castigated and excommunicated for apostasy. I'm hardly well qualified to say to what extent this stereotype meets actuality, being as I've never set foot in a Church of Latter-day Saints and have only ever knowingly met one Mormon. But the sense you get from congregation is of a familiarity with doubt and conflict within and between individuals. In the space of just ten lines of lyrics, Mimi Parker sings about the importance of ritual as an anchor, of the resistance and sense of revolution that is sometimes required to reassess just how helpful that ritual may or may not be, and the reaffirmation that maybe some of that ritual might be useful and necessary after all. We may or may not have a specifically defined faith as experienced by love, but everyone has their cornerstones and anchors, their philosophies and heroes to help them make sense of the world. And every now and then, everyone needs to reevaluate and reconnect to get a sense of their path. This song is a beautiful exploration of the pull and push experienced by anyone with a soul. i
This week's entry from the mesmerising world of minimalist electronica comes to you courtesy of Nathan Salzberg, who in 2022 released Landwerk 3, a collection of instrumental pieces featuring the crackling sound of old phonograph samples forming a bed beneath the simplest of phrases plucked out on a guitar. The result is rather haunting, as if a modern-day musician has decamped to a studio full of ghosts of musicians past. Take 10, for example, which opens with Salzburg's trademark crackling phonograph and then introduces the plainest of patterns picked delicately on his guitar before the spectral sound of an old band playing a howling umpar tune emerges from the ether. Gradually, the two elements, the guitar and the sampled band, begin to fuse together. What initially sounded like a cacophony of different tunes coalesces into a kind of call and response through the ages. It churns over and over and over again in the finest of minimalist traditions. And the end result is rather delicious. There's a piece of sumptuously gorgeous music by George Gershwin called An American in Paris. Gershwin is possibly most famous for his Rhapsody in Blue, with that distinctive rippling clarinet glissando, which has been the de facto soundtrack for New York cityscapes ever since it's used by Woody Allen in the film Manhattan. But all the fuss about Rhapsody in Blue shouldn't really diminish the gloriousness of An American in Paris. Where Rhapsody in Blue is bold, brash and bathed in glorious opulence, an American in Paris is rather more playful, to the point that, along with the typical lineup of violins, clarinets, trumpets and all the usual orchestral instruments, the score for this piece features a variety of car horns. It is sumptuous and romantic, fusing classical music and jazz into a whole new thing. There's syncopation and playing around with compound and simple time signatures, but you'll also find nods to Bach's air on a G-string hidden in there deep beneath all the glorious dissonance and Hollywoodish scoring. You can imagine this soundtracking some classic MGM movie, with beautiful people falling in love with each other all over the place. Gershwin is a master at taking little musical themes, motifs, and playing around with them 
slowing them down, speeding them up, changing their rhythm, using them as a bass line beneath the other melodies, letting them appear in the higher register of flutes and the lower register of tubers, but never letting the idea get boring. In a recent episode, I played a song from Elbow's first album and waxed lyrical about how, in the case of that band from Bury, I generally prefer their early stuff. I generally get ridiculed at home for saying such things, as it does sound like such a snobby thing to say. And I guess I play up to the stereotype a fair old bit, but the fact is, I genuinely do find myself preferring earlier stuff from bands and artists. The song I've chosen from this next segment is not from the first album of the band in question, but it does predate their most well-known album by a good four years. While Pulp are best known for their 1995 album Different Class, with the entirely deserved hits of Common People, Misshaped, Sorted for Ease and Whiz and Disco 2000, forming an essential part of the musical landscape of the mid to late 90s, the band's history goes back as far as 1978, when Jarvis Cocker started the band at school. Their first album, It, came out in 1983, a suitably jangly affair as much indie pop of the time was, complete with one song, Love Love, featuring a raucous performance from a Dixieland jazz band. There was then a second album in 1987, glorying under the splendid title of Freaks, Ten stories about power, claustrophobia, suffocation and holding hands. It's their third album, Separations, from 1991, we're actually going to be talking about today. In particular, the opening song, Love is Blind. 
fans of different class will be intimately familiar with the gloriously grubby landscapes painted by Cocker and Company on that album's track listing, a catalogue of desperate searching for love and meaning amid a sea of lust and one-night stands. The origins of this theme can be found in songs like Love is Blind, a behemoth of a tune that finds our lanky hero trying to reconcile the impatient desire to throw himself headlong into a new relationship with a fear, born out of previous bad experiences, of it all going horribly, horribly wrong. It's a spectacularly self-assured sounding song, especially given this comes from a band in their 13th year, having not yet had that all-important big hit. There's a freshness and vitality to this song, as there is with much of the album, conveying a wonderful sense of newness, all the more fascinating because it's possible to see in this song and others from this album traces of what would emerge in later songwriting escapades from Pulp. I love it. Last year, one of my guests on the podcast was Moira Mahafferty, who chose the song Wildfires by Salt as one of the ten songs that were doing the rounds in her head at the time. It was a suitably brooding, quietly angry song about the injustice of the killing of George Floyd. It's haunting, intense and demanding of your attention. By contrast, one of Salt's more recent outings is rather lighter to the touch. Air is a sumptuous sounding choral and orchestral work with a melody that initially recalls Old Man River, but then spreads out into something lavish and gorgeous and wonderfully cinematic in scope. There really aren't enough adjectives to describe the sumptuous loveliness of this piece with its swooping strings, shimmering percussion and the wonderful call and response from different parts of the choir. So... I'll just let the music do the talking. Mm-hmm. 
Here in the UK, if we want to indulge in our fear of modern life and an accompanying sense of social anxiety, we can turn quite readily to the maudlin works of Radiohead. Over in the US, though, there's another band who explores such themes, albeit with a quirkier, rather less morose sound. I speak, of course, of Grandaddy. Jason Little's synth-heavy band really came to embrace the theme of fear and self-loathing in the 21st century, right at the turn of the new millennium, with their punningly titled Software Slump back in 2000. But they clearly weren't done with the idea when it came to their follow-up record, Someday, released in 2003. One of my favourite tunes from that album is the brilliantly observed song, The Group Who Couldn't Say, which tells the story of a group of workaholics who were rewarded for their efforts at work with a trip to the countryside, which causes them to completely freak out. This song has it all. A catchy melody that will stick with you for the whole day, and a spectacular set of lyrics that are so original and offbeat, yet so relatable, that you can only conclude that Jason Little is some kind of musical mastermind. If you don't believe me, just listen to this verse from the song. Becky wondered why she'd never noticed dragonflies. Her drag and click had never yielded anything as perfect as a dragonfly. It is utterly, utterly splendid. And it goes rather a lot like this. best love songs are the weird songs. You can keep all that earnest heart will go on and everything I do I do it for you nonsense. For me the best love songs are rooted in kooky honesty. Think Pink Floyd's bike 
in which Sid Barrett says he'd give the two-wheeled vehicle of the song's title to the love of his life if he could, but I borrowed it. There's a poignant, breathtaking beauty to that song, which trumps all the grand, empty gestures of five members of a boy band in matching white suits, rising from bar stools in a moment of synchronised choreography for another rousing chorus of banalities generated by the algorithms inside Simon Cowell's head. Or what about Madness's My Girl, which documents the real-life conundrum of a couple who love each other to bits, but still get frustrated by each other's foibles. There's a song by The Real Tuesday World that takes this brutal honesty up a notch, as you'll be able to tell from the title alone. Still terminally ambivalent over you, from the 2003 album I Lucifer, is a witty, frank song about a pathological failure to commit. It bounces along to a 1920s influence backing all vintage sounding effects and samples which foreshadow the kind of electro swing sound caravan palace would make their own a few years later. To call it a love song might be stretching things a bit, but maybe that's the whole point. It's a spectacularly honest portrait of a man who finds it so hard to express his feelings to the object of his affection. Take this verse for example. Don't ever mention commitment because I could never say I do. Mention you're leaving. I'll be on my knees and pleading. I'm terminally ambivalent over you. It may not sound like a typical love song, but it's hard to say categorically that it isn't a love song. It is and it isn't. There is light and shade here, and that's what makes it so captivating and fascinating. I never thought I'd need somebody Workplace is a funny old world in which you spend an inordinate amount of time surrounded by people you wouldn't in any other circumstances choose to spend any time with at all. The workplace is a funny old world in which you spend an inordinate amount of time surrounded by people you wouldn't in any other circumstances choose to spend any time with at all. The accident of you all having gravitated towards a career in accountancy architecture or professional beekeeping means you may also end up in the company of people who would rather be reenacting the Battle of Culloden, attending every single rugby league fixture involving Hull Kingston Rovers, or indulging in some epic feats of extreme origami while you 
wouldn't. And then, every now and then, someone at work turns up with whom you can share more than vague pleasantries about the weekend or obligatory conversations about reports on the company's performance in the last quarter. I mention this because in the last few weeks, I've run into a chap at work who was introduced to me as a massive Bell and Sebastian fan. This, it turns out, is something of an understatement, as it turns out he's the kind of guy who will go and see Bell and Sebastian twice in the same week. He doesn't know I'm saying this about him, so to protect his modesty, let's call him Phil. Phil may well be a dedicated follower of Bell and Sebastian, but his real passion is a band called the Trash Can Sinatras, whom he would travel to the ends of the earth to see. I love meeting people like Phil because their enthusiasm for the bands they love just oozes out of every pore, and I end up wanting to find out more and more about them for myself. The trash can Sinatras, like Bell and Sebastian, are a Scottish band, in this case from Irvine. They formed in the mid-1980s at the height of jangly indie pop, Perhaps their most famous song comes from their first album, Cake, released in 1990, and goes by the name of Obscurity Knox, which Phil joked about as being rather prophetic. It positions the band at the point in the Venn diagram where the Smiths overlap with Aztec Camera. But the song I want to play to you today comes from a fair bit later in their career, Weightlifting shares its name with album number four from the band, released in 2004, and it is beautiful. The weightlifting of the title is not a reference to people down at the gym obsessively sculpting their muscles through the manhandling of heavy objects. It is quite simply a song about finding solace, relief, a parting of the clouds. Over the heavy, lumbering beat thrummed out by Davy Hughes's bass, Frank Reader's soothing vocals provide all the comfort he could ever want. A sumptuous, oral hug and that wonderful sense that maybe everything's going to be alright after all. I discover the wheel and watch the Some albums you just buy because they look good. 
That's what people used to do in the good old days before a million radio stations, Spotify, YouTube and TikTok. And it turns out that's what I still do from time to time. I picked up Ray Guns and Not Just the Future, a 2009 release from The Bird and the Bee, from Islington's branch of Flashback Records back when I used to work in London. And I'm ruddy glad I did. Ray Guns, I thought at the time, looked like precisely the sort of album I should definitely own. And I really wasn't wrong. Take, for example, the song Witch from the album, which exudes a wonderful John Barryish sultriness. Singer Inara George has a deliciously silky smooth voice that washes over you, while the gorgeous instrumentation of this Bond theme that never was works its magic underneath. It's a beautiful, poignant song about a woman who thought she had done all the right things to attract the man of her dreams, but he has not fallen for her, despite maybe a brief attraction. Dressed in the language of a witch who has tried to put a charm on a young man, it's beautifully, elegantly written. Spellbinding, even. Yes, I am a witch And I have conjured you Every now and then the name of some band I once read about in the reviews section of Select in 1999 or Q circa 2003 will pop into my head and I'll become obsessed with the idea that I need one of their albums, even though I've never heard a note of the band's music in my life. So it was with a band called Candidate. All I could remember was their name, but that was enough some months ago to send my fingers searching for a second-hand copy of their debut album, Taking on the Enemy's Sound, from 2000. To be honest, upon listening through the album a couple of times, I felt it was pretty much instantly forgettable. But then when I put my phone on shuffle the other day, the opening track from the album popped up, and I found myself having to reappraise my dismissal of the band I'd gone to so much effort to track down in the first place. The Great American Starving Band is a rather beautiful, sprawling piece of whimsical-sounding indie pop with a dark underbelly. Beneath all the light-to-the-touch mellifluousness of the melody, recording perhaps lazy summer days by the sea with seagulls calling overhead, 
there's this weird lyrical theme of drinking the blood of angels out of revenge for some supernatural crime. And there's that snipey line before the extended instrumental takes over that runs, and dear God, please don't feed the band. You're kind of left wondering if that's some kind of jibe at their management or some other representative of music's underbelly that siphoned off their rightful dues at some point. Despite my initial misgivings, it's a gorgeous, glorious piece of music, and it goes almost exactly like this. Welcome to the platform Your table's by the bar And if you tip the actress I'm sure she'll park your car And you can drink the blood of angels They drink the blood of man It's nice to get your own So there you have it, 10 more songs in the key of nothing in particular. I hope you enjoyed them. Let me know what you thought by responding to the post for this episode on Instagram. Just look for songs in the key of. And don't forget to head over to the Spotify playlist for this episode where you can hear all the songs in full. I'm always on the lookout for new songs to listen to, enjoy and talk about. So if you're a singer, songwriter, band member, or just a good old-fashioned music fan, please do drop me a line with your recommendations of things to listen to and to share. I'll be back sooner or later with songs in the key of something or other else sometime soon. In the meantime, have a marvellous few days and nights till we meet again. Mm-hmm.